Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and this is the 193rd episode of the podcast that's titled Revolution Z. This time we continue our sequence presenting the text of the book No Bosses with our second episode on participatory planning. So this episode is titled Who Allocates What To? And it further explores the allocation system we favor for beyond capitalism. There will even be a third episode on participatory planning. I said last time, and I want to reiterate, that these No Bosses episodes about allocation are particularly demanding. I apologize if anyone is getting a headache. Listening to material being read is difficult in any event. More so, it is especially difficult if the material is, so to speak, outside the usual flow we are accustomed to. This stuff is just that. Understanding participatory planning is not hard like understanding biochemistry or topology is hard. It doesn't require years of prior learning. But it is hard because it is so different from our usual experience and ingrained beliefs. I will tell you true, if I was listening to these three episodes on allocation, I would have to sometimes go back over it, and I would probably need to get the book to prepare and to refresh. So, is this sensible content for a podcast? I don't know. Perhaps it isn't. But here's my motivation. I believe widely shared confidence in a vision for a new economy is necessary for widely shared hope, and therefore for continuity of effort, and also for widely shared strategy, and therefore for coherence and effectivity of effort. And I believe continuity, coherence, and effectivity of effort are needed for victory. And the point of our radicalism, after all, isn't just to look good, or to be on the side of the angels, or to fight the good fight. The point is to win. Allocation is part of economic vision, and we need vision. So difficult or not, it needs sustained attention. I should say, I feel the same way about political kinship and community vision being also central to winning. Not just economy. So, No Bosses mainly addresses economy, not due to economy's greater importance, because it isn't more important, but just due to the author's history with it. At any rate, reading aloud No Bosses episodes for, of Revolution Z, as I have noted before, every so often I interject a spontaneous comment that hits me as I am reading. It is strange but true, also as noted before, that despite having written No Bosses, as I read it now, while of course it says things that I advocate, the words are for the most part unfamiliar. It is like I am reading someone else's writing, which, however, says what I believe. As a result, I have reactions as I go along. Most of those reactions, to pass no boss's episode, before taking up allocation, I slid by, but every so often I interjected them, before continuing on. For allocation last episode, however, I did somewhat more spontaneous interjecting, and I anticipate that I will probably do more spontaneous interjecting this time, too. How do I explain that? Here is what I said last time, and it still applies. Truth be told, I expect the actual text to be tight, and, well, the way I wanted it to be in print. But you are not considering it in print, but in audio. So I am going to sometimes try to add, clarify, and otherwise help the text and you listening to it as I go along. I hope this works, but I do have to warn that we are going to try to discuss pretty comprehensively the most complex part of a classless self-managing vision for post-capitalism. 
it may take a bit more than usual concentration from you, and from me too. Finally, before continuing with discussing participatory planning, if you haven't heard episode 191, you may want to before listening to this one, which continues on from it. 191 described the logic and many features of participatory planning by considering it via a series of six takes on its features, each going a bit deeper than the last. This episode, we continue that pattern, providing still more takes, trying to provide an accessible road to favoring a new mode of allocation beyond markets and central planning. So, participatory planning, take seven information, and communication. So far, our picture of participatory planning is built around workers and consumers making and refining proposals in their councils. But what do workers in a council need to know to sensibly and even to optimally propose their production in light of its effects on themselves, on other workers, on consumers, on society writ large, and on the ecology? And what do consumers need to know to formulate their consumption requests in light of their own needs, as well as the needs of other consumers and workers and their social and ecological effects? And does participatory planning provide the needed information in ways able to inform decisions without encouraging damaging delays? For optimally informed collective self-management, one, The proposals of participatory workers should account for the gains from working less or using less productive though more fulfilling techniques against the consequent loss of consumer well-being due to lower output. The proposals of participatory consumers should account for the benefits of increasing their consumption requests against the sacrifices that would be required to meet those increased requests. Participatory workers should be able to distinguish a responsible production proposal that properly utilizes labor and infrastructure from a production proposal that falls short. Participatory consumers should be able to distinguish responsible consumption requests from ones that are excessive or, for that matter, unnecessarily modest. Everyone should make choices in light of the full social and ecological costs and benefits of what they desire to consume or produce, including the quantified and, when beneficial, to consult the qualitative causes and consequences of their choices. The procedures of planning should not waste time and should propel actors toward responsible proposals and, when necessary, intervene to prevent indefensibly irresponsible ones from being enacted. I interject. I hope the logic of all this is clear. It's a big list, but the list is a kind of agenda for worthy allocation based on the assertion that to be worthy, allocation should facilitate informed self-management with solidarity, diversity, equity, and sustainability, and which accomplishes social aims without wasting socially valued assets. That last point is us requiring socially guided, rather than corporate guided, efficiency from allocation. The chapter continues. Allocation mechanisms provide means to decide among options. Should certain productive assets from the societal commons be used to produce peanuts prison cells, autos, or shoes in any conceivable combination of options. Likewise, given that such products are produced, how much of one should exchange for another? 
If I consume so much of one, how much of my income will I have expended that I cannot then spend on another? Economists call a key concept in sensibly making such choices the social opportunity cost of doing any particular thing. If we produce peanuts, how much of other things will we forego because we have used labor, land, and facilities in peanut production? Likewise, if we produce autos, what do we forego from not having used the involved assets to produce, say, public transit, or violins for that matter? Given people's preferences, are we putting productive assets we receive from the commons to their best socially valued use? To get decisions that account for actual costs and benefits, prices need to account for full opportunity costs. Prices should tell us, if we do X, how much of Y could we have done instead? And therefore, do we really want to do X, or would we prefer doing that much Y? If an economy functions perfectly, its prices will take into account the full effects of both the production and the consumption of its inputs and outputs. The full range of actual made choices in the economy, which is the actual final production and consumption that result from allocation, will determine the social opportunity costs of every single item among the totality of possibilities. This is a difficult but important point to understand. I interject. The idea is that in an economy, items do not carry a price that arises from only their particular internal attributes. Prices are not like weight, for example. Instead, the prices appended to items are relative valuations. They are systemic. It is the totality of relations of the production of items and of their consumption that interactively and in some total establishes their prices. The chapter continues. In participatory planning, things don't have built-in objective values or costs. Rather, the values of things result from and simultaneously determine contingent choices and outcomes. It is a circular relationship. The total quantities produced of shoes, autos, peanuts, and everything else, and how they are apportioned, in sum, determines the relative value of each particular item, which in turn determines the totals produced and how they are apportioned. The economist's way to look at this is that an economy will ideally produce peanuts up to the point when producing any more peanuts would entail losing some other item more valuable to society than the extra peanuts. Which is to say, in economic lingo, it will produce peanuts up until the point when its social opportunity cost equals the benefit from the last peanut. Obviously, in the real world of human interactions, there is no such perfect accounting. But approaching this situation is beneficial in precisely the sense of meeting needs without wasting means by taking them from pursuits where they would yield greater benefit. As we proceed, in light of this observation, however, it is important to realize, again, that a real economy isn't a mechanical wind-up system that functions however we might abstractly model or even instruct it to. If allocation ignores important factors, like market processes ignore externalities, not to mention that they ignore the well-being of employees, then when such allocation arrives at its final determinations of what is produced and what is consumed, those final choices won't, in fact, have properly accounted for full social benefits and costs, much less balance them. 
We get way more pollution, for example, than had pollution been accounted for. We churn out pencils. When do we stop churning? Pencils are useful, but the more pencils we produce, the less is the value of each new one we add to the pile, at least after a point. And this is true for most, but not all, products. Moreover, we certainly do not want to use up so much of our labor and resources churning out pencils that we start to forego things more desirable to us than our growing pile of pencils, say, milk. We also shouldn't want to do it beyond the point where we pollute so much as to outweigh the value of more pencils. Ideally, again, assuming excellent prices that account for personal, social, and environmental effects, the economy will churn out each of its products to a point where the benefit of the last item of that output is equal to its opportunity cost, remembering that both the benefit and the cost depend, again, on the final allotments. To produce another instance of the item would then incur the same or a bit higher cost and would have the same or a bit less social value, so that by not producing that item we could, at least in theory, use our productive capability to produce something else that would benefit us more. That is the professional economist's central message about arriving at efficient allocation. On the surface, it may seem a bit gray or mechanical, but the message is instructive if the allocation's accounting has been inclusive. So the big passion becomes, what do we count when we count? That is, do we count the worker's circumstances, the impact of pollution, or even the impact of the changes in consciousness associated with different choices? The problem in the mainstream profession's insight is that economists typically accept bad prices as if they were good. They ignore, or more accurately, they downplay the presence of factors inadequately accounted for, even in their models, much less in actual social settings. I interject. The discussion is trying to convey the insight that economic theories offers while it rejects the blind spots that compromise those insights for the benefit of owners. The chapter continues. Let's return to discussing what is needed for a perfect, which is to say, an unreal, but in some ways instructive situation. Producers and consumers must use numeric prices as a shorthand way of discerning the relative value and cost of various choices. That is so because it would be impossibly time-consuming to make all decisions about what to consume and what to produce absent a mechanism for summarizing massive volumes of information. And this is what numeric prices accomplish, better or worse, depending on what they account for and what they leave out. Numeric prices are ideally a social measure of what society wants and what it doesn't want, and how much in each case where society is hopefully taking into account the full implications of contending possibilities. Numeric prices have worth, therefore, to the extent that an allocation system's processes, market competitions buying and selling, central planning's dictated and accepted instructions, or participatory planning's iteratively updated proposals, generate sufficiently accurate estimates of the full personal, social, and ecological costs and benefits of inputs and outputs. In a participatory economy, prices or relative valuations arise in the process of participatory planning. Along the way, indicative prices serve as shorthand guides for making preliminary proposals and evaluations. 
The social character of the final emergent actual prices, their emergence from the preferences, circumstances, and social interactions of economic actors, not only in participatory economics, but in all economic systems, is important to understand. Too often, theoretical economists, using the discipline's tools, say little about the social origin of prices and make it sound like they are objective, quantitative measures that represent an intrinsic, objective, non-contingent reality, which can be found technically by an analyst solving equations. In the literature on central planning, for example, prices are too often seen as emerging from a cut-and-dried mathematical calculation. In neoclassical literature, market prices are too often said to arise from plugging fixed preferences and given technologies into some complex equations while assuming producers maximize profits and consumers maximize something called utility. Used carefully, this sort of thinking can shed some modest light on some limited questions, but used indiscriminately, it can be very misleading. Real people's preferences arise in social interactions. They are not innate and fixed, but social and malleable. What we want and how much we want it is contextually and historically dependent. Not only do the outcomes of the clash and jangle of different people's preferences depend on what those interactions are like, but the very preferences that people bring to their decisions and that lie at the basis of economic results depend on people's interactions in that self-same economy. Our preferences influence and are influenced by our institutional circumstances and situations. Our institutional circumstances and situations influence and are influenced by the nature of the economic activities we undertake. Cause is effect is cause is effect. With different allocation systems, our activities differ, and different preferences and prices emerge. Emergent preferences and prices often deviate greatly from what we could reasonably call freely expressed desires and full measures of social and environmental costs and benefits. In thinking about allocation, therefore, we should remember that for estimates of social costs and benefits to be optimal, they must arise from realistic social communicative processes that, as closely as possible, account for all the involved factors. To propose positive approaches for allocation, we have to propose processes that give people no incentives to dissimulate regarding their true desires. We have to propose processes that give people equal opportunity to manifest their feelings in determining outcomes. We have to propose processes that help people arrive at choices that are not perverted by impositions contrary to their freely expressed desires. It is precisely because our participatory planning process differs in many respects from the flawed communicative processes of market and centrally planned allocation that its prices will differ as well. Even the same population, with the same infrastructure, with the same everything, except for having participatory planning and other participatory economic structures, or having, say, markets and other capitalist or market coordinator structures, will arrive at different prices and outcomes. In fact, even for the same population and same productive commons and the same participatory planning apparatus, matters of happenstance at the time of planning could cause a different plan to emerge. Prices are what the totality of choices make them. So how can we say that one set of prices is better than another? 
The answer is that we can give a poor grade to a system's emergent prices when we can show that they don't take into account factors we think ought to have been accounted for, such as external effects, like pollution. Or we can give a poor grade when we can show that prices were imposed, such as with central planning. Or we can give a poor grade when we can show that participants had inappropriate levels of influence, such as due to having different bargaining power. Or we can give a poor grade when we can show participants' preferences were warped, such as due to advertising or due to a bias against collective goods built into procedures that misassess collective goods. Participatory planning's accounting procedures and the other defining elements of participatory economics consciously reduce all these distortions of final valuations or prices. More, indicative prices in a participatory economy derive from cooperative social proposals and refinements of proposals, which can, if desired, be qualitatively checked when actors are confronted by unexpected reports. This addition can enhance the likelihood that quantitative indicators remain as accurate as possible. It can also help develop worker sensitivity to fellow workers' situations and thereby sensitize everyone's understanding of the intricate tapestry of human relations that determines what we can and what we cannot consume or produce. Yes, as critics will emphasize, the burden of distributing information in a participatory allocation procedure can be somewhat greater than in a non-participatory economy because the latter simply disregards such matters. This is particularly true for adding qualitative information to databases able to be accessed when folks feel the need, so that then the bare numbers that are prices can be considered in light of their real-world human content. While not being negligible, this would not entail everyone writing long essays about their work and living conditions. In fact, the whole approach could be optional. If pursued, it would presumably mean having a few people in each industry whose jobs included the task to generate concise accounts of unusual situations to correct for the fact that not everyone can personally experience every circumstance. It might be particularly helpful to consult such information when consumption or production proposals deviate greatly from expectations. In such cases, instead of seeing only a proposal that makes what we consider unexpected requests, we would be able to access reasons for the unexpected requests. This would increase our understanding of why producers of something we want more of are reluctant to meet that demand, or why consumers of something we want to produce less of are reluctant to reduce their requests. It might speed our ability to respond with refinements of our own proposals. Part of a full critique of markets is that they cause buyers and sellers to become steadily more concerned solely about self and steadily less concerned about others. In a market system, there is every incentive to behave thus, and there is often no way to do otherwise. Even with no attempt to make qualitative information available, participatory planning would do vastly better than markets because even if workers and consumers in participatory planning only explicitly concern themselves with their own condition, the prices they act on nevertheless take account of impacts beyond buyer and seller. But at least in one sense, there wouldn't be improvement because even though participatory planning's prices take into account other people's conditions, and even though arriving at a participatory plan solely using its prices would respect others' conditions, 
Still, if people actively consider only their own situation, the process would not explicitly involve each actor ever self-consciously taking into account the situation of others. Account would have been taken automatically by virtue of being built into vastly improved pricing and decision-making, but it would not have been taken due to being built into the personal roles and planning. As such, I suspect planning with only numeric information would have significantly less positive impact on who we are and how we see others than would planning with occasional access to qualitative information. So I would lean toward opting for the latter, even at the expense of some additional time spent. I interject. What this discussion of communication and including or not including qualitative information hopefully reveals is what it means that a participatory economics is not a rigid blueprint. The idea is that to be what we call a participatory economy entails having certain defining components that constitute what I call a scaffold. This is the Productive Commons, Self-Managing Workers and Consumers Councils, Balanced Job Complexes, Equitable Remuneration, and Participatory Planning. But to get from the defining core features, the participatory economic scaffold, to an actual functioning participatory economy, requires lots of contingent additions to the scaffold of two sorts. It could be elements that are just that that, that are literally added to make the scaffold itself work properly and better and more smoothly and so on. And it could be elements that are added on top of the scaffold, beyond the scaffold, uh, things that um, uh, fill out economic life but aren't essential uh, to, to, to having economic life be participatory. The chapter, and thus this episode, continues with yet another heading. Participatory Planning Take 8, Allocation Organization. And then continues, in a participatory economy, as we have now seen in a number of successively deeper and also more complex and difficult takes, our proposal for economic vision is that every workplace and neighborhood consumer council participates in the social allocation method we call participatory planning. But besides workplace councils, participatory planning will also undoubtedly involve industry federations of workers' councils and a national producer council. And besides neighborhood consumer councils, it will also involve ward, city, county, and state federations of consumer councils, as well as a national consumer council. Moreover, in addition to all these councils and federations of councils, participatory planning would likely have various agencies that would facilitate information processing for collective consumption proposals, determining the price of externalities, proposing and evaluating innovations and investment projects, handling workers' requests for changing their place of employment, and aiding individuals and families looking to find membership in new living units and neighborhoods, among other functions, most of which will be discovered by future experience. Finally, during each year, at every level of the economy, appropriate agencies designed and operating based on future insights and experiences might also help units revise proposals and search out the least disruptive ways of modifying plans in response to unforeseen circumstances. And we should remember that all workers, including those with such roles in industries and neighborhoods, as well as those at the Iteration Facilitation Board, would get income for duration, intensity, and onerousness of socially valued labor, and thus would have no way to accrue excessive wealth. 
All this taken together is profoundly important, but also too detailed to elaborate further for a visionary scaffold. However, we can at least ask for clarity. What more specifically might be included among participatory planning's possible steps and possible personal roles? In participatory planning regarding day-to-day -day affairs over the course of a year, we propose that every individual or council at every level propose its own activities, and after receiving information regarding other act actors' proposals and receiving the response of other actors to its proposal, that each individual and council then make a new suitably altered proposal, and that this recurs until a plan is adopted. Thus, each consumption actor from individual consumers up to large consumer federations, propose a consumption plan. Individuals make proposals for private goods, such as clothing, food, travel, toys, etc. Neighborhood councils make proposals that include approved requests for their individual members' private goods, as well as previously approved requests for the neighborhood's collective consumption that might, for example, include a new pool or a new park. Higher-level councils and federations of councils make proposals that include approved requests from member councils as well as the federation's larger collective consumption requests. Indeed, collective proposals precede personal ones as they impact each actor's personal budget by indicating how much each actor is charged for their share of collective consumption. And similarly, each workplace council proposes a production plan Workplaces enumerate the inputs they want and the outputs they propose to make available. Regional and industry-wide federations aggregate proposals and track excess supply and demand for the industry's products. As every individual worker and consumer council navigates through successive iterations of participatory planning, they alter their proposals in response to the information they receive. There is no center or top. There is no competition. There are no excessively self-aggrandizing paths to pursue. Each actor fulfills responsibilities that bring them into more cooperative rather than into more antagonistic relations with other producers and consumers. Over the course of the planned year, everyone is remunerated for effort and sacrifice. Everyone has a proportionate influence on their personal choices, as well as on those of larger collectives they are part of, and on the whole economy. Updates flexibly occur as each year unfolds. It sounds viable, but can people actually make the called-for planning proposals? And will the proposals be responsible? And will the process converge on a worthy plan in an acceptable time frame? I interject. For those who find that my multi-take approach to presenting the allocation system keeps repeating itself, I apologize, and I acknowledge that it does, but with a caveat. Each repetition adds and refines, or that is the intent at any rate. And so here we go again, back to preparing first proposals. The chapter continues. Suppose we keep records of the production and consumption that took place in the just completed year. Then with each new year, we would have information about the prior year's enacted plan. Suppose the prices that wound up embodying the relative social costs and benefits last year were also recorded. Then each year, we would have a set of final prices from the prior year to use to begin this year's estimates. If we also stored last year's full plan, access to additional relevant information could be made available to all actors in the planning process who chose to consult it. 
By accessing such information, each unit could easily see what its own proposals were in the prior year's planning process. With all this information available, how might workers and consumers councils make their first proposals for the coming year? Actual, finely detailed, and contextually efficient procedures will emerge and undoubtedly be steadily refined in practice in ways real-world lessons illuminate. We here suggest one possible but not required method. We offer it to aid in understanding possibilities without drifting into thinking we can or must discern, much less decide, all aspects now. For each upcoming year's plan, one, workers' councils, individual consumers, and consumer councils first access relevant data from last year. Two, the same planning participants simultaneously receive information from the Iteration Facilitation Board estimating this year's probable changes in prices and income in light of existing knowledge of past investment decisions and changes in the labor force. Three, planning participants also receive information from Production and Consumption Councils regarding long-term investment projects and collective consumption proposals already agreed to in previous plans indicating the continuing commitments for the coming year. 4. Planning participants optionally review changes in their own proposals made during last year's planning to see how much they had to scale down their consumption desires or their desires to improve their quality of work life, and to remember their past aspirations in these regards. They also look to see what increases in average income and improvements in the quality of average work complexes are projected for the coming year and consider how they might best enjoy these gains. Finally, using estimated prices as starting indicators of social costs and benefits, planning participants develop a proposal for the coming year, enumerating what they want to consume or produce, and also, if society warrants doing so, providing qualitative information about any major deviations from expectations. Each proposal then enters the mix with all others, feedback arrives, and revisions are made. This occurs iteration after iteration until a final plan is reached. Please note, the above does not mean the individuals or collective consumption councils must specify how many units of every single product they need all the way down to size, style, and color. Goods and services would instead undoubtedly be grouped into categories according to the interchangeability of the resources, intermediate goods, and labor required to make them as well as the easily predicted variation of preferences for optional features like size and color. For planning purposes, consumers would only need to request types of good, shirts, vegetables, fruit, books, vehicles, from which workplaces could deduce, based on past experience, how many of different instances of each type of good would be needed to let everyone later pick a preferred size, style, and color, etc., to actually consume. At any rate, individuals would present consumption requests for main categories of goods to neighborhood councils, which would, by some agreed procedure, collectively check for any significant problems in their requests and organize them into a total council request for the total of individual goods for all their members, along with the neighborhood's previously agreed collective consumption request, to become the total neighborhood consumption proposal. Neighborhood proposals would be added to consumption requests from other neighborhoods and then to full ward proposals, city proposals, and so on. 
having the next higher level council able to approve or contest lower level requests until they are ready to be passed on could likely save considerable planning time and in any event might be advantageous for assessing collective implications so might well be introduced into the process in the same way on the production side similar procedures would unfold the workers council of a firm would freely access summaries of its last year's production, including what was initially proposed, changes made during planning iterations, and what was finally enacted to make separate proposals. It would access the Iteration Facilitation Board's prediction of this year's requests based on extrapolations from new demographic data and last year's negotiations. Workers would presumably consider this information, perhaps guided by suggestions from some workers specially assigned to the task, discuss ideas for improving work life, and debate proposals that would finally settle on the firm's first proposal for inputs and outputs. I interject. I am describing broadly what I envision the process looking like. It is a good bet details will emerge from experience, differ in different situations and places, and so on. The core of the scaffold is what makes participatory planning participatory planning. The details, which I sometimes call the edges, which are what is added to the scaffold, is what makes participatory planning the actual system that is employed in different contexts. The edges are not unimportant, far from it, but they are contextual, different choices in different situations and for different folks. The chapter continues with considering proceeding from one proposal to another. Suppose in some participatory economy the first proposals are in. Workers' councils have entered how much they want to work, and consumer councils how much they and their members want to consume, all in light of their own very possibly overly optimistic assessments of possibilities. Do the first proposals constitute a plan, or must we have another round? To decide, it is necessary to collect all the proposals, total demand, and total supply for every class of final good and service, for every intermediate good, and for every primary good. In a first iteration, where consumers propose in part a wish list, and workers likely propose output in hopes of some substantial improvements in their work lives, while some goods may be in excess supply, we can reasonably predict that for most goods, initial proposals will reveal excess demand. In other words, initial proposals taken together will not equal a feasible plan. As the next step, every council would receive new information, indicating the goods in excess supply or demand, and by how much, and how the council's own proposal compares to proposals of other comparable units in the same industry, as well as new estimates of indicative prices. At this point, consumers would reassess their requests in light of the new prices and would likely, in most cases, shift their requests for goods in excess demand somewhat toward those whose, whose indicative prices have fallen because they were in excess supply, or at least less in excess demand than others. Consumers' councils and individuals whose overall requests were higher than average, and especially higher than anticipated budgets would warrant, would feel obliged to whittle down their requests in hopes of making their proposals responsible and viable. Why do consumers make changes toward operating within budget? Because when the final plan is settled, their budget sets a limit on their consumption choices. Equity and efficiency would emerge simultaneously from each round of consumers' refinements. That is, the need to win approval from other similar councils in the form of a mesh plan that all could then commence implementing, plus the need for one's own plan to be within budget, 
would together provide reason for councils whose per capita consumption request is significantly above the social average to reduce their overall requests in accord with their budgets. But the need to reduce could be met by substituting goods whose indicative prices have fallen for those whose prices have risen. Attention would likely focus on the degree to which council proposals diverge from projected averages and on whether their reasons for doing so are compelling, in which case exceptions might be warranted. Similarly, workers' councils, whose ratios of social benefits of their outputs to social costs of their inputs were lower than average, which is to say, after consideration of mitigating explanations, whose proposals weren't adequately utilizing their assets and inputs, would come under pressure to increase either their efficiency or their effort in using assets from the commons, or to explain why the indicators was misleading in their particular case. Before increasing their work commitment, workers might substitute inputs whose indicative prices had fallen for inputs whose indicative prices had risen, or might substitute outputs whose indicative prices had risen for outputs whose indicative prices had fallen. Why do they do this? Because they want their activity to be socially valued, so it can be remunerated, and because they need to wind up with a responsible, implementable workplace plan, so they do not instead wind up having their agendas thwarted by a need to reconceive the use of their workplace assets, as well as their total payroll reduced due to some of their effort not being socially valuable. Each iteration of planning would yield a new set of proposals. Taken together, these proposals would yield new data regarding the status of each good, the average consumption per person, and the benefit-to-cost ratio of each firm. All this would allow calculation of new price projections and new predictions for average income and work, which would in turn lead to modification in proposals, all of which dynamics would recur in additional planning iterations until a feasible plan is reached. And when is that? When does the planning process conclude with a collectively agreed plan? When the gap between supply and demand of each item falls within some socially agreed range, including provision for some slack production to ease accommodating subsequent modifications of preference and actions. Notice, participatory planning is an entwined process of all producers and consumers, assisted by information agencies, but entirely self-managed, it has no top, no bottom, no center, no periphery. I interject. I am making an argument and many claims based on it. I don't see how someone listening could come away thinking, okay, this works, I'm all in. Perhaps after carefully reading it, that could occur. My guess instead is one could come away from listening thinking, okay, maybe this works, maybe I should be all in. Then the question arises, if I feel thusly, should I read it to decide? If I then read about it, and I'm still thinking, maybe so, should I think more on it, talk with others about it, etc. No Bosses isn't an academic exercise. It isn't a novel meant to entertain. It is instead an extended discussion and argument meant to provoke attention to, and in time, after cogitating about it, warranting attachment to, advocacy of, and use of a shared vision. So the question becomes the one I took up much earlier in No Bosses and in the sequence of Revolution Z episodes, and, well, honestly, in lots of other places as well. Does having a shared vision matter enough to prospects of winning change and eventually winning a new economy and a new society 
to be worth people investing their time in considering, discussing, debating, and settling on one? That's for you to decide. But at this point, one question that may well arise is a feeling, wait a minute, what happens during the year we just planned for, given that our needs and wants will undoubtedly change as the weeks and months go by? So the chapter continues by assessing what it calls flexible updating, converging on a plan during a planning period, and then updating the proposed initial plan during the year in light of changes in preferences or circumstances of the whole planning process. For example, assume we have settled on a plan for the year. Why might we need to update it during the year, and how might this be done with the least disruption? Consumers would begin each year with a working plan, including how much of different kinds of food, clothing, meals at restaurants, trips, books, records, tickets to performances, and so on they have proposed to consume. What if after some weeks someone wants to substitute one item with a different one? Or what if she wants to delete or add items to what she had expected to prefer for the year? Or what if she changes her mind and wants to save or borrow more than she planned to, and to thus reduce or increase overall consumption? She belongs to a neighborhood consumers council that in turn belongs to a ward council, a city federation, and so on. Some changes that Tony and Thalia in one neighborhood opt for will cancel each other out when taken together with change requests from all the consumers within their neighborhood, some people increasing requests for a particular product, other people decreasing requests for it. Other variations will cancel out at the ward level, and so on. As long as consumer adjustments cancel each other out at some consumption federation level, production plans need not change. The same overall array of goods is headed to the councils, or rather made available for purchase by the council's members online or while browsing at local store outlets. Indeed, facilitating adjustments without disrupting production plans would be one function of consumer adjustment boards, for example. But what happens if aggregate demand for a particular item significantly rises or drops, as it undoubtedly would in some cases? Suppose as one possibility, individuals record their consumption on credit card computers that automatically compare the percentage of annual requests drawn down with the fraction of the year that has passed, taking account of predictable irregularities such as birth dates and holidays, seasonal variation, and the like. The data could be processed by planning terminals that communicate projected changes to relevant industry councils that in turn communicate changes to particular firms. The technology could be similar to that used in contemporary computerized store inventories, where store sales are automatically subtracted from inventory stocks. In any case, what would presumably follow is that consumer federations, industry councils, and individual work units would negotiate adjustments in consumption and associated production, which might in turn entail adjustments in work assignments to account for change demand. Such changes during the unfolding year could lead to work diminishing in some industries and increasing in others, relative to the plan for the year, including possible transfers of employees. But there need be no more moving about than in other types of economies. In any case, the need for workers to change jobs or to increase or diminish workloads and the ensuing impact of that on their lives would be a factor proportionately considered in the negotiations over whether and how to meet change demands, though neither unemployment nor inequitable income would ever arise. Notice also, 
Since each firm's activities would have implications for other firms, we can confidently predict that if plan matches between supply and demand are calculated too closely, any change in demand of goods with many inputs could disrupt the whole economy. For this reason, a taut plan would prove unnecessarily inconvenient, since it would require excessive debating and moving. To avoid this and to simplify updating, we can pretty confidently predict that a plan agreed to should be loose enough to include some unutilized capacity for many goods. A practical knowledge of those industries most likely to be affected by non-canceling alterations would facilitate this type of preparatory slack planning, and is logically no different than planning in advance for medical disaster or other needs that individuals alone can't predict but that we can socially predict and plan for. There is a related additional issue, however. During the planning period, there emerges a final array of anticipated exchange rates or prices based on planned inputs and outputs for the economy. At the end of the year, we will have had actual inputs and outputs for the whole economy. Due to changes in output of various goods from the initial plan to the final reality, final real prices will differ somewhat from initially planned prices. The same is true for incomes for work. A person could have benefited or lost, having paid the initial planned price but gotten items whose true value wind up somewhat higher or lower. A participatory economy could simply reassess people's overall expenditure, charging them accurately at year's end, leading to some debt or remittance compared to their initial expectations. For that matter, facilitation boards could release new price estimates every few months for those who wish to avoid any large variations by adapting their choices based on the new valuations. Or a participatory economy might instead allow such errors to pass unaddressed on the experience-validated assumption that over many years they would average out to no one's undue advantage. The point here is that these are edge details that will no doubt be resolved in practice, perhaps in different ways and different implementations of participatory planning and due to different practical lessons. The same observations hold in only slightly different forms for detailed procedures by which industries would credit equitable incomes to their various workplaces for their overall duration, intensity, and onerousness of actually undertaken socially valued labor. Total income that each workers' councils would in turn internally equitably allocate among its members. The same logic, again, with some modest differences, would presumably apply to detailed industry federation procedures for requiring updated operations by member workplaces to ensure that they responsibly utilize Commons inputs. To assess a vision, the main thing to keep an eye on, instead of such contingent details, is how the broad institutional structures and properties of the preferred vision, the visionary scaffold, fulfill desired values for economic life. And I now note that that ends that take, and this episode already being overly long and overly dense, it is a good place to end this episode too. In our third and final allocation episode, by way of some more takes, we will get some additional complexities. And that said, This is Michael Albert, signing off until next time for Revolution Z.